Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Whenever someone asks me how I'm doing, I often reply by saying, I'm living the dream. It's an expression intended to reflect that I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing and life couldn't get any better. It also, of course, is a bluff of sorts, as folks really don't always want to hear exactly how you feel when they ask you that. On today's podcast, though, we have a guest who, frankly, seems to have lived a dream for most of his life. Rick Ridgway has traveled to some of the most adventurous destinations in the world, including the summit of K2. He has a new book out about his life lived wild, and we'll be back in a minute to explore the book and the motivations behind some of the chapters in it. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Today we're talking adventures, friendships, and the environment. And to drive that conversation, we're joined by Rick Ridgway, who has traveled the world seeking adventure and, along the way, debated and discussed environmental consciousness with his friends, colleagues, and peers. Rick, a climber, kayaker, explorer, filmmaker, and thoughtful writer, has a new book out, Life Lived Wild, that chronicles many of the adventures he's embarked upon the past five decades or so. Welcome to The Traveler, Rick. Well, great to be here, Kurt. It is a hard name to pronounce, Rick Ridgeway. Uh, <laughs> my kids struggled with that growing up, and my youngest son found a really good shortcut, and he used to call me Wick Ridgeway, and that that stuck. So I still have a lot of friends that call me Wick. Um, you're welcome to do that if you want. Well, I'll, I'll try and stay uh, stay proper and, and get the Rick out. I know once I was on a, a jury panel in a, in a federal district court, and the, the judge asked me how to pronounce my name. 
And I said, it's really quite simple, it's just Kurt. And uh, fortunately, he and everybody else started laughing over that. Now, Rick, as I mentioned in my introduction, you've lived a life full of adventure, and many of those adventures were shared with some of today's environmental stalwarts in the climbing and mountaineering world, specifically the late Doug Tompkins and Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. How did you fall in with those two? Well, it was through uh, our mutual love for uh, mountaineering, for traveling to the wild places in the world. I, in the 1970s, was um, living outside of Los Angeles uh, in Malibu with some surfer buddies. And I used to go north up to the Ventura area to go surfing. And I uh, heard about a climber up there, uh, Yvonne Chouinard, who was also a surfer and a climber. And I didn't know too many people that had both passions. So I put a few feelers out and you know, sure enough, we were only one circle away and I got an introduction and started going up to his place to surf. And then he invited me to join him on uh, climbs at first in the high Sierras. And then that, you know, expanded to other states. And uh, eventually we both got together and went up to Alaska to climb Denali. And our friendship was cemented by the early 70s, even before he had started Patagonia. Uh, back then, it was Chenard equipment with a focus on making uh, equipment for, for climbers. And sure. he had a few items of clothing uh, in the line that uh, in 1973, he spun off to start its own brand, uh, br company and brand, uh, Patagonia, that he named after one of his you know, favorite places in the world, after an, an adventure he'd had there with Doug Tompkins, who you mentioned. And I didn't meet Doug for several years after that. Uh, Yvonne was uh, always talking about him and always saying, you know, at some point we got to get together and, and go on a climb. And, th and that happened a few years later when we uh, all got together to uh, guide Tom Brokaw up Mount Rainier, which is another story I have in my book as well. Yeah, that was a great one. It was really interesting um, reading about the compass at the end. Now, early on in Life Lived Wild, you mentioned your discussions of environmental consciousness. Tompkins, of course, leveraged his fortune from his company, the North Face, to preserve lands in South America. And Chenard and his company, Patagonia, have been out front in the United States pushing environmental issues. What other than the example of their work inspired you to embrace environmental conservation? Well, Kurt, when, when I wrote this book, it was in the beginning um, a compendium, a collection of stories about my adventures. Uh, that uh, some friends had talked me into, into getting down, uh, including my kids who said, you know, it's time to put them all together, all these stories we've heard around the dinner table and the, and the, and the fire, uh, the campfires all these years, you gotta put them in writing. So I, I did that and it ended up being 50 stories long and it was too long for a book. It was like a doorstop instead of a book. And I was still going forward to publish them, though. And I had to send them to a friend of mine, Candace Davenport, who was a friend of mine in my 20s and was in a couple of the stories. We had some misadventures in our use uh, that, in fact, we ended up getting thrown in jail together, which was, you know, in Panama, which is another story in the book. <laughs> but I'm digressing a bit anyway. I had to send these 50 stories, the, the, at least the two stories that included her to get her 
approval to publish them. And she wanted to read the whole book. And that kind of gave me pause because I thought, oh, what if she doesn't like it? So, and I hadn't talked to her for decades. So I went ahead and sent her the story and she said, give me a couple of weeks. So I got a call from her and she says, well, I've read the book. And I said, do you like it? She said, well, it's, it's okay, but tell me, who do you want to read it? And I said, oh, adventurers, explorers. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it that much. Well, what do you want them to learn from it? And that really gave me a pause. I, I hadn't really thought about that. And then she said, you do need to think about that because you have 50 stories that want to be a memoir and they're not. Uh, you need to be more open and more honest. Uh, you need to tell the stories of what happens between the stories. And I said, well, how do I go about that? And she said, you need to start by thinking about your own life, about where you started and where you ended or where you're at now. And I said, well, give me a couple of weeks. So I called her back and I said, I think that I started out in my youth, in my 20s, so obsessed with the sports, mountaineering and climbing and long distance adventure, sailing, backcountry skiing. I was loving getting to know the people I was encountering, pursuing those sports. And I had a love and passion for the places, especially the wild places we did those sports. But over my life, little by little, the focus shift from the sports to saving the places I was doing the sports. And I think that is the thread of my life that stands out among, above anything else. And she said, perfect. Now, take your 50 stories and throw out all the ones that don't have something to do with that arc in your life and keep the ones that do and integrate them and be honest and open. And I said, Candace, I thought you were a lawyer. In fact, you're sounding like some kind of prosecuting attorney. I said, where'd you learn about this stuff? And she said, oh, I forgot to tell you for the last 30 years, I've had a side business as an author's coach. So, you know, how fortunate can anybody be <laughs> to have that kind of guidance? And that's the long-winded answer to your question, Kurt, that it has been a long, lifelong arc to um, increasingly focus on conservation of what remains of the wild places on our planet. And it's a shift that happened over decades, little by little, friendship by friendship, book by book, story by story. And Yvonne and Doug Tompkins were certainly two of the people that most inspired that shift in my own life, but they weren't the only ones. Uh, it was encountering people like George Schaller, uh, probably the most eminent conservation biologist uh, in the world who I think um, singly has probably protected more parts of the world than even Doug and Chris Tompkins were able to do or have been able to do. George was a huge inspiration for me. It was people I read and never had the opportunity to meet in person. Uh, books that had been recommended to me, especially by people like Doug Tompkins, who was out on the front lines of the thinking about the challenges that we human beings are facing from our overuse of the planet's limited resources. So it was um, 
as is often the stories of our lives, you know, not a single epiphanous moment, but mm -hmm. a long progression over time with years of reading and thinking about these things to where I'm at now where I want to use whatever years I have left uh, with the tools that are in my box to do what I can to save what remains of the wild places in our world. And um, certainly national parks is <laughs> are, are at the very top of the list of the strategies to do just that. No, absolutely. I, I think they are. And I, I've long, long wondered what role national parks can play in slowing the sixth mass extinction because they are uh, reservoirs of, of the natural world and, and largely they're, they're protected, although um, more and more pressures are squeezing a lot of those parks and, and certainly squeezing migration corridors that we need um, to sustain wildlife today. Yeah, they, they, they are indeed uh, probably the preeminent tool in the box, as I uh, mentioned a, a minute ago. And I've been so fortunate to have been able to help in a small way, uh, Doug and Chris Tompkins and in their work to use their resources to create national parks in Chile and Argentina, where they've just been incredibly successful. And, and I got to sit around the campfire and in the tents over the years with Doug, as he shaped and formed his own thinking about the role that national parks have in conservation. And I had a ringside seat to the evolution of his thinking where finally it landed on the idea that expanding the number of national parks in the world was the biggest opportunity all of us have in front of us to do something about the extinction crisis. And he decided to strategically focus just on two countries that he knew quite a bit about, uh, two countries that he enjoyed on a personal level uh, profoundly where he loved the landscapes especially in the southern parts of Argentina and Chile. And, and that turned out to be a smart move uh, to, to really you know, narrow his focus and go deep in one place where he and Chris have made such a huge difference. But you mentioned the biodiversity extinction crisis, but you know, uh, national parks, in my view, are one of the rare opportunities uh, we humans have to incrementally do something to solve both the, the twin crises of extinction and climate. Those two crises are both caused by the same thing. If you really look at it, and again, Doug guided me in this thinking, that at the headwaters is too many people on a planet using too many resources from that planet uh, that it can offer to support us in turn. Too many people using too much stuff. Yeah. That is the cause of the problem. The extinction crisis and the climate crisis are the result of those two things. But they also are completely overlapping in their opportunity to offer solutions to both crises. So that national parks are a opportunity for we human beings to find a solution to both crises because Protected areas, of course, uh, save species. They give them, uh, as we all know, uh, the, the room to roam, the freedom to roam, to survive, not through just through this century, but into the next. And at the same time, we're learning more and more 
the potential that they have um, as carbon sinks to uh, sequester carbon when degraded areas are restored and protected, they can pull carbon out of the air and put it back into not just the trees, but especially the soil. So what an incredible opportunity we have to globally double down on the idea of expanding our systems of national parks in all countries across the globe to, to solve these two crises and in, in doing that, save ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to that topic in a, in a bit. Um, I, I did want to ask, how do you think enthusiasts of adventure sports should give back to the wild and natural world that gives them so much? Do you, do you think that they've got an obligation to do so? Are there examples of such giving back uh, other than you know what Mr. Tompkins and, and Mr. Chenard have done that you can point to? Well, Doug and Yvonne are certainly paragons of you know how to do that and why to do it. I know Yvonne's been long frustrated by the outdoor industry's um, only, you know, really partial uh, support of protecting and expanding or of expanding protected areas. I've heard him for decades uh, complain about why more outdoor companies don't understand what to him is self-evident that um, using their resources to expand the protection of protected areas and including national parks is, is healthy for their businesses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in fact, it's, it's healthy for all businesses. Um, we all seem to be frustrated by business leaders' inability to connect those dots, which to us are, are just so obvious. And sometimes I tell business leaders on this topic that they should all use their companies and the resources from those companies to advance conservation, to create more parks and more protected areas, because it is the remaining places on the planet where we've let nature go about its business that are providing the resources that all businesses need to support themselves. And not just the resources from extraction, but you know, as at the highest levels is just clean water and clean air. You can't have healthy businesses without healthy resources. And you can't have healthy societies without healthy resources and a healthy planet. And if you don't have healthy societies, you can't have healthy markets. Mm -hmm. So it all ladders up to protecting more of nature. And ultimately, you get to what advice Yvonne got from David Brower who said that there is no business on a dead planet. Well, we do our very best to remind business leaders of this all the time. And little by little, we're getting there. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with practitioners of outdoor sports. We continue to be just surprised uh, when we run into practitioners of outdoor sports who don't seem to care about the protection of the areas where they're doing the sports. It's just kind of mind-boggling, but you know, you you have to you have to start the conversations with them too, and 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 we do that, and I think little by little it's getting better. I think as uh, more people understand the consequences to their own lives from those twin crises that we just talked about, they also uh, are getting increasingly more committed to doing something on a personal level about them. You know, I hope you're right. Um... You know, I grew up in the last century, like you did, and um, the outdoors were 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 tackled 
with muscle-powered recreation, it seemed. You know, we were hiking, we were backpacking, in your case, climbing. Um, I've done a lot of canoeing and kayaking. And there's a lot of clamoring now for more access to public lands and, and um, the outdoors. And, and some of that clamoring revolves around, you know, first it started with mountain bikes, and now we're seeing electric mountain bikes. And um, there's a, a push for, for more access into a lot of these, these places that um, it's not always by, by foot or by paddle. And, and that's kind of concerning because um, it does create more more pressure on the landscape and, and pressure on the experience. I mean, you know, talking about the national park experience, the, the, the COVID pandemic has um, generated a, a rush to the outdoors and parks like Yellowstone and Zion and Yosemite are so crowded. And um, not only does it impact the natural resources and the park staff, but certainly it impacts the national park experience. And maybe, maybe I'm just showing my age, but um that, that's one concern I have is, is how we manage these crowds and, and educate them on the natural resources that they're enjoying so much. Yeah, it's a dilemma, isn't it? But, you know, the solution has to be in uh, different levels of access and zone, zoning, as it were. Sure. <laughs> um, and I know that the company at Patagonia, when I was there, you know, we it was a perennial struggle over the same topic, especially around mountain biking, where you know, the company wanted to support and does support the, the sport, but it also understands the sport's impact, as you just mentioned, on, on areas. And, and it's, a, it's a conflict uh, that's um, almost unavoidable if you, want to, if you want to support both ideas without, without some sort of exclusive uh, engagement on either end of the spectrum. Right. And I think the answer, as I just said, is uh, over defining areas where you can do the different kinds of activities. And ultimately, with the really popular areas, uh, it has to come to a limitation to access, uh, as, it, as, it, you know, as we saw years ago, beginning on the Colorado River so, so long ago, you know, when you, you know, had to line up and queue for permits and, and then you know, maybe have a lottery system. But yet, even with those things, and even though both of us have just said we grew up in the last century, <laughs> I, I didn't know, I didn't ever thought about getting to a point in my life where, you know, I could say with you or, may, or have you include me in that, which is so true. But there still isn't there, Kurt, there's so many places in the world where you can still get into, into deep wilderness and wildness. And, and, and even in our own, in our own uh, home country here in the United States, you know, you can, you can find all kinds of places that are still remote and wild. And those are the places that engage me. And those are the mountains that, even though I'm not actively climbing much anymore, um, I have no interest in going to the peaks that are heavily traveled at all. Uh, it's, a, it's a disinterest in doing that. Um, I just, uh, uh, last week I was in New York and I attended the premiere of a film about uh, the Sherpas uh, who got together and, and made the first ascent of all 14 of the world's 8,000 meter peaks in, in seven, a record seven months. Uh, and the Sherpas were there, I got to meet a few of them, and they had this photograph of when they climbed Everest, when coming off the summit, they looked backwards and there was this pack and queue of 
climbers lined up to get to the top that had created this road jam. Uh, and you may know what photograph I'm speaking of because it went viral. And I think many of your listeners to us uh, in this conversation will re recall that too. I just find it so repelling to even think that some condition like that uh, exists in the world today. But at the same time, <clears throat> I think of all the remote mountains I've got to that nobody's heard of, uh, where there weren't few, if any, people at all. And, and those places are still out there. They're the ones that draw me. We're talking today with Rick Ridgway, who has a new book out, Life Lived Wild. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. From now through December 31st, 2021, Interior Federal Credit Union is offering auto loans with rates as low as 1.99% APR. If you aren't already a member, apply at interiorfcu.org, get ready for the holidays, and take advantage of the year-end car deals. Use their car buying services to help find the best deal out there and start saving today. Interior Federal Credit Union the official credit union for the Department of the Interior and your natural resource for financial services. Membership is required. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Okay, we're back with Rick Ridgway, who has traveled to some of the most adventurous destinations in the world, and uh, he's put together a new book, Life Lived Wild, about those adventures and about environmentalism and how we can make a change on the landscape. Rick, how might other wealthy business people and philanthropists be inspired to follow the Dubois? Um, Tompkins and Chenard and yourself, and, and lead to contribute to protection of the land, the biodiversity, and the wildlife? Well, I tell anybody interested in this topic that it starts with engagement uh, in nature, with nature, that you can make a commitment to use whatever tools you might have, whether it be wealth or time to you know, volunteer or contribute if you're a philanthropist to the protection of wild areas. But I don't think you're ever gonna get it into your heart and soul the way the people I've been fortunate to know like Doug and Yvonne in my life have done. If you don't get out there 
and get nature and wildness into your bones, as Doug used to say. So that's the first thing I offer up. But then I also suggest that um, it's not too difficult to figure out how to support uh, the expansion of protected areas in the world. That if you're a philanthropist, there are many places to find out how to get engaged. Uh, one of them is an organization I'm actively with right now called uh, One Earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we oneearth.org, we've put uh, a lot of money over the last seven and eight years, you know, nearly $20 million funding scientists uh, to essentially create a, a map of the, of the world showing uh, all the areas that uh, are currently protected, what the level of protection is, what areas need protection, uh, what areas need restoration. Um, and it's all uh, to uh, scientifically measured to help solve the extinction crisis and the climate crisis. And, and now what we've done with that mapping is start to identify all the groups in the world, the hundreds and thousands of them that are doing on the ground work to expand the protection of those areas that we've identified. <laughs> and that map is now on our website. Um, and those organizations are populating a platform that we've uh, created called the Project Marketplace, where you can go and find the place in the world that most interests you, where then you can identify the groups that are working on the ground to do something about protecting those places. And you can get involved with them quite easily. Uh, Patagonia has a very similar site called the, um, uh, you know, the uh, the Actions Network, where you can you can go on Patagonia's site and find the groups that they support uh, already with their corporate philanthropy, and you can join the company in uh, that support and uh, either volunteer your hours or your wallet to uh, expanding protected areas globally. Now, do these maps just show um, nonprofits and NGOs that are involved with this, or do they they list some of the businesses? I'm just wondering if the the, the consumer out there could influence corporate um, conservation by deciding whether or not they're going to buy that company's products, depending on how they the, how they act in the the natural world, so to speak. Yeah. No. Uh, right now, uh, the the One Earth platform do doesn't include companies, but um, we are we have thought about that. So that could be an expansion uh, in in the future. But it's uh, you know companies are it's their responsibility to communicate to their customers you know what they're doing uh, to support not just their shareholders but their stakeholders. Uh, and there I've I've worked with groups that um, are in turn are working with companies to develop tools to do that. One of them is a group that we created at Patagonia called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition uh, that I co-founded. And its uh, mission is to uh, develop tools that, that measure uh, the environmental impact of uh, companies, both uh, with their operations and, and with their products. And then to uh, offer these measurements up in easy to understand uh, ways to their customers so that customers can understand what the impacts are uh, of that business on the planet and its people. And, and that's starting to scale. We um, now have uh, almost half of all the global production for apparel and footwear on planet Earth in that group using the tools. And uh, 
some of the, and the measurements are starting to go public with uh, companies, including Amazon, uh, experimenting with different ways of communicating those uh, measured impacts to their customers. So as you just suggested, Kurt, all of us can then uh, use uh, those measurements that are verified, <clears throat> that are trustworthy, that are transparent to uh, select companies, whether they're supplying our goods or, or our services that are doing the best jobs of minimizing their impact on the planet and doing the best jobs of supporting the social justice of all the people that their businesses touch as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, we just uh, came out of the climate talks in Scotland. Um, there was a lot of talk and, and some people would say there wasn't enough action done. Given your extensive global travels, the experience um, with geographies and cultures across the world, do you think that the espoused goals of conservation today to protect 30 by 30 or ultimately half Earth are realistic and feasible? Um, yeah, they're realistic and feasible, but I can't, we can't depend on governments to get there. We've seen that time after time. Every cop has fallen short of what really needs to be done. Um, I'm kind of over the government part of it. Uh, it's up to us. Uh, and I'm seeing that sentiment start to scale really quickly. You know, if it scales enough, then the governments are going to be forced into action by their civil societies they represent. Um, that's probably going to be the only way forward that keeps us all from collectively going over uh, the cliff. But boy, when I see the number of young people that are just over it with government, and I see their passion to keep pushing harder and harder uh, for the change that we all need, uh, you know, there's still there's still hope out there. But again, uh, I think we can't stop working with governments. Uh, we have to continue to push and pull on them, but we have to really work to uh, scale the engagement, especially of young people uh, globally around the world. And, and it's really happening. Yeah, I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, there's some days I, I wake up and that, that mountain to climb seems awful steep and long. You know, <laughs> I had another fun story for you, Kurt. So, you know, I retired from Patagonia a couple of years ago now. And uh, my personal assistant at the time was this young black woman, Leah Thomas. And, um, you know, there wasn't a place in the company for her, unfortunately, after, after I left. And, and, but she, she went off like me and uh, sort of redefined her, her life. And you know, we had been... I, I loved working with her. Um, we, we were just such a, a great pair together. And, you know, she was just doing mostly administrative work with me, but she was soaking in uh, both my and the company's uh, commitment to uh, environmental protection. And she was challenging herself to figure out why more people of color weren't committed to environmentalism and, and what she might do to, to change that. And, when she left the company, she turned frustrations into action and uh, you know, started a website, went on social media, developed her own framework for how she saw the scaling and the engagement of people of color with issues like climate change and environmental protection and protected area expansion. And her social media started to go viral and her new book is just about to come out and <laughs> it's got, uh, you know, enormous pre-press already. She was at COP uh, 
Al Gore introduced her. She is wow. the, the leading voice of young women and men of color uh, advocating for environmental protection. And that's, the insp that's a case point when I say that these young people are inspiring me. I'm so proud of her. Um, and uh, I, I, again, she, she's where my hope resides. Yeah, no, definitely important work, and it's good to see that she's gaining some traction. Boy, is she ever. Now, Rick, there is a critique of fortress conservation out there today, which is a critique of national parks and other protected areas, that to protect wildlife and other land values places limitations on human uses of the land. Have you seen examples of successes in your travel in which the needs and values of the, the resident uh, societies are adequately respected while protected area values are at the same time achieved? Well, there are, I think, um, you know, some places that offer models forward, uh, how to do that, uh, places in the Amazon where indigenous peoples in, in countries like Ecuador have, you know, stood up uh, to resist uh, development in their homelands uh, and where they have achieved protection uh, and resisted those developments and achieved protection as a, as a consequence. And, and they've really showed how they could be uh, the best stewards for uh, their own homelands. But it's not, I, I think it would be uh, a failing of all of us to just assume uh, that uh, indigenous peoples are always just going to be the best stewards because some of them aren't. I mean, there's growing examples of indigenous peoples who wanna you know, sell off their backyards to extractive industries to for 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 the money and it we all have we we, we all need to be clear-eyed i think about um these things uh because it to me just underscores the fact that human beings as i and i talk about this in my book we human beings have a a tendency uh when we have the opportunity combined with the technology to exploit wild places and the wild animals that live there. And that has been part of our species history since our diaspora out of Africa. Mm -hmm. And it is easy to document uh, the exploitation of a land and its wildlife by we humans when we, when we first arrived there. It's happened more often than not when the Maori got to New Zealand, they took out the moa birds. And when the Aborigines got to Australia, the, much of the megafauna went extinct. When we human beings first arrived in North America, in my own opinion, it's not just coincidence that within a very short period of time, measured in hundreds of years, uh, the extinction crisis of the megafauna in this continent got underway as well. Mm -hmm. Now I know I know well that that's a controversy, <laughs> uh, and many people don't agree that with that. Who argue that it was climate change? But I argue back that if it was climate change, why did none of the amphibians go extinct? Why were the only insects that went extinct in North America when human beings arrived? Uh, dung beetles, and other people are coming back now and saying, well. And that extinction crisis uh, coincided, you know, uh, with uh, events 12 and 13,000 years ago. But we humans now, we've seen those footprints in white sands. We were here uh, thousands of years, 20,000 years ago, but maybe we weren't here in any numbers to have an impact. And I believe that 
uh, the, the, the human wave that came down the North American continent uh, that coincided with the extinction crisis had new tools in their, uh, uh, in their arsenal, especially it wasn't just, you know, uh, high tech spears and spear throwers, but not high tech, but advanced spear point, but they, they really had a, a use of fire. And I think that, uh, it did coincide with, uh, with a pressure on the natural systems from climate change, but that the wildlife in North America would have made it through uh, a pressure from uh, climate change, just as it had for millennia, millennia before we showed up, but we tipped it. And we've seen that combination play out many times uh, over our own history. So here's the thing, is that we have a, this instinct, just like a lot of predators do, to take more than we need. Mm-hmm. When a mountain lion gets into the sheep pen, it'll kill all the sheep, even though it can only eat one. And it's the mountain lion's nature, and, and it's human's nature to do that. But we also have an ability to listen to those uh, angels of our better selves and overcome our basal instincts and protect the wildlands and the wildlife in our own habitats, in our own backyards. And many, many indigenous cultures know how to do that really well, while some don't know that very well either. And that's the reality of the situation. So it's a pretty complex consideration and answer of your question. But I think uh, that engagement with indigenous peoples as leaders of their uh, own, uh, as, as protectors of their own backyards can, can really work when uh, those indigenous cultures have those core values that help them overcome their own basal instincts like all of human beings own. We can hope, we can hope. Now, you almost embarked on a career as a college professor, if I recall correctly. Um, have you ever thought about that and what might have been if you took that course and what might not have been? <laughs> yeah, we all don't, all of us, I mean, everybody listening to this, Kurt, will almost for sure have, uh, if, if they're older, have memories looking back on their lives of their own forks in the road. And I think all of us now in our older years, uh, looking back on our own lives, probably look back to those forks and muse uh, on what our lives might have looked like had we taken one path instead of the other. Um, And I've done that. What if uh, back when I was on a path to become a professor, uh, when I had entered a PhD program at Berkeley, and what my area of interest, culture geography, was one of the best schools in the world, where I saw myself down the line as a professor, uh, what would my life have been like then? But but I was interested in cultural geography and I was interested in how geography intersected with cultures in the most remote places on the planet. That was my fascination. So had I gone down that road, I think I still would have been out there, you know, wearing a different hat than I had as a outdoor adventurer uh, but nevertheless, out there in the wild parts of the world, um, trying to bring home uh, my own experiences and learnings from the most remote places on, on the planet. So you would have gotten there regardless. I think so. <laughs> it was just such a deep bedded, well, my mother 
I think it would have been probably called an obsession, but it was so deeply embedded. I, I would have gone, I would have landed in, in, in the same landscapes, but again, wearing a different hat. Sure, sure. Now, my colleague, John Miles, in reviewing your book, um, he characterized it as a love story. In the review, he wrote that Rick's love for Jennifer and his children, for the Dubois, for Chris, for his lost friend, Jonathan Wright, and Wright's daughter, Asia, for the mountains, the Cheru, the young adventurers coming up, permeates the book. Is that a correct analysis? Well, um, I think it is. Uh, and I really have my hat off to John for summarizing the book uh, that way in his view. Uh, I wouldn't maybe initially have put it that way myself, but listening to you read that now, I, I, I think he's right. I, it is a love story. And love is probably the best word to describe uh, that thread through the book that represents the, the passion I had for not just the wild places, but the people that I was with in those wild places and the people back home that supported me to live this life was so much of my time in those wild places. I never would have been there without, without Jennifer. But then he also mentions my love for Chris and Chris Tompkins. That's who he's talking about, Doug's wife. Chris is the only person other than my wife who was in the delivery room at the birth of all three of our children. Wow. And that alone probably will communicate to the, all of you out there listening to this, uh, what Chris meant to me and to my wife, uh, the closest of our close friends. Um, when her husband, Doug, died uh, in a kayak accident with me, we were in the same boat. I barely made it out alive and Doug didn't. My wife was there for Chris, throwing her the life ring that really helped her uh, metaphorically get back ashore again herself. And it was all about love. And Chris herself has said in her own line of work, it's about love. Because in the pursuit of expanding protected areas and national parks in the world, Chris's focus, it only works long term when there are enough people supporting her work because they also love wilderness, that you can't ultimately achieve protection of something that you don't love. And that's where it starts. So listening to John say that love is the thread through the story, um, it, it, it is uh, something that warms me. I, <laughs> I wouldn't have put it that way myself at first, but thinking about it, I, I agree with him that, uh, that, it, that is the thread through all of it and not just with me, but the people I was closest to. Life Lived Wild, a new book by Rick Ridgway. Um, it's an adventure story, many adventure stories. And it has some lessons woven through it about how we can be better stewards of this earth. Rick, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, listen, my pleasure, Kurt. Thank you so much.
Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to explore an overlooked site of the National Park System, Thule Springs Fossil Beds National Monument in Nevada. The travelers Lynn Riddick caught up with Superintendent Derek Carr to discuss the camels, lions, and mammoths that once roamed this landscape and which, in many cases, left their fossilized remains there. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.